Kia ora everybody. I am very fortunate to be standing here alongside a couple of my very close friends um, and in the position to, uh, I guess I'm going to interview them, um, but we will see how that goes. It's a bit of a kōrero and we're going to talk about some of the great mahi that they've been doing um, over the last few while. Um, so I'm just going to pass it over to them to quickly introduce themselves before we get started. Talo Fofano, Oloingo, Mateo Fafitei, Maliato Brown. Um, growing up in Christchurch, everyone called me Matt Brown. Um, my parents come from the beautiful island of Samoa, um, from the villages of Sapali'i and Falakai. My mum's name is Aitofi Telesia Taimalelangi, and my father is Famanul Brown. And so I am one of nine Samoan Polynesian kids. And so I was born in Tamaki Makoto up in Auckland, but raised down here in Christchurch, Ototahi, since I've been here since I was three. And so, um, yeah, honoured to be here tonight and uh, a massive ngamihi whafitai telelaba to our publisher, giving a, a brother like me, a boy like me, who grew up with very little, a chance to tell my story, which is not just my story, but the story of many of our rangatahi, our youth, our people in our backyard. Kia ora te whanau. so nice to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, my family hail from the far north, uh, but I was raised in the Manawatu and now down here in Ōtatahi with Matt. Uh, we have three children, one of them's here tonight, so if we all, can all say kia ora to Angelo. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's our number one biggest fan and supporter. Before we left, he said, oh, can I come with you guys to this event? I was like, oh, do you really want to come, son? It'll be boring. Mum and Dad is going to talk about our book. He's like, yeah, I want to come and support you. So thank you, son, for wanting to come. Um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, very excited to talk about this work and yeah, once again, thank you all for coming. Kia ora kōrua. Um, so Matt uh, mentioned just before that this isn't just his story, it's the story of many of our, our men, our rangatahi, our whānau, um, within not just Māori and Pacifica um, communities, but all communities. And so I know that he has a letter that he would like to read. So I wrote this letter to uh, um, a dear client of mine who um, I lost recently. And so the reason why I want to share this letter because this is the heart of our kaupapa. So before we go on any further and elaborate on the work that we do, um, I wanted to share this with you guys. A letter to my brother. When you told me that you wished you could tell me everything, but you couldn't possibly because it would test even the limits of my love, my heart was still my brother. So still so quiet. You said, bruh, if I told you, you'd walk like everyone else. But if only you knew that when I think of why I even barber at all, I think of men like you. If only you knew that it's the shame you push down their whispers in your ear telling you I'd leave if I knew. Because if the truth whispered, it would tell you nothing you could ever tell me would change my mind about you because I see you. And when I see you, I don't see the gangster. I see a little boy sleeping on the bed springs because your father deemed you unworthy to sleep on a mattress. I've always seen him. So when I cut your hair, I'm cutting that little boy's hair. And with every snip, I'm telling him he's worthy. 
You are worthy, little one. Snip, snip. You are worthy of healing. Snip, snip. You are worthy of belonging. Snip, snip. You are worthy to be known. Snip, snip. You are worthy to exist. Snip, snip. You are worthy to be loved. You epitomize the reason I do this at all. When you come into the barbershop and sit in my chair, I feel you exhale. I exhale too. And suddenly you aren't in my chair in the barbershop. You are lying on those bed springs in a dark room, and I'm sitting on the end of your bed with you. I see your tears, but I don't hear them. You weren't allowed to cry back then, my brother. But you can cry with me now, little one. I'm honored to hear your tears. Sometimes they just need a witness. So I'll sit there in the dark with you as long as it takes until you have the courage to push them out. I can smell the urine. I know it was just your way of protecting yourself, little one. I'm sorry you had to stay like that all night. I'm here now, and we'll clean it up together. I promise. I'll sit up with you here all night, just so you know I'm not going anywhere. It will always be because of men like you, with little boys inside of you, longing to be seen that I consider this sacred work to be the honor of my life. To cut your hair and see you beyond what the world sees, well, it's a perspective that Atua must surely have of each of us. So I'll continue to be my father's barber. I thank you humbly for this gift, my Uso. I thank you for letting me see you. I thank you for trusting me with your pain. I thank you for allowing me to sit with you in all of it. It's been a journey, but I know you sit above and rise above the pain, a place where you see all things, a place where your soul is finally free. I promise you I'll tell your story, and in time I will, but until then, rest in power. So I wrote that letter to a man whom society um, would label the worst, a man that put stuff out into our communities that a lot of our whānau would often say, this man destroyed our communities. But when you understand intergenerational trauma and pain, the question is never why the addiction, but why the pain? And so this is a question that I have asked many times to the men that sit in my barber chair who often visit um, our local barber shop here in Christchurch, in Rickerton Road. Um, and for this gentleman who is no longer with us, he lost his, um, his uh, battle to cancer a few months ago. Um, it's been the honour of my life to, to sit with him over the last decade cutting his hair and hearing his story. A boy who was raised in the system a boy whose mom left this world due to an overdose. A boy whose father left him at a boy's home because he deemed him unworthy, found him too hard to look after. And so the system raised him, and he was moved from foster home to foster home to foster home. In each home, he was abused. And so the streets raised him, and society would label him all these lames, all these labels, he's a gangster, but I was honoured to see the little boy. And 
for me as a, a brother who, who grew up myself in, in a very, very similar situation, where home was a volatile war zone. When the infamous movie Once We Warriors came out, I was 10 years old. And um, I sat there on the, on the fala, on the mat with my, my siblings, and we laughed through the entire film. We thought it was a comedy. That was our way to survive the pain. And we would often laugh because we would compare Beth Hickey's black eyes to my mum's black eyes. We would say, man, our mum's black eyes are way bigger than Beth's. But that was our reality. By the age of 10, I had lived in every woman's refuge home here in Christchurch. And this was just a normal part of our, our lives. It was normal to wake up to your dear mum being beaten up, to then have the police at your doorstep, uplifting you, taking you to the next home, to the next shelter. This was very normal for us. And so this mahi, this kaupapa, it comes from a real place, a place where me and my friends growing up in high school, in school, we would laugh about our pain and our trauma because shared pain somehow makes you feel like family. Um, firstly, that's, that's a beautiful letter that you wrote. <clears throat> um, but it's a similar story to your own, you know, and I think that, you know, when Matt speaks about the little boy and talking to the little boy that he sees in this, in this hard man, um, I know that there's a, a big focus on the little boy or little Matt in your book. Um, I wonder if you might want to open up a little bit about that little boy. The character I resonated with the most in that film, Once We Warriors, was Grace. Yeah. I was Grace. I was the, the girl that, well, the Tane, the boy that walked around Christchurch with my um, headphones um, and book, and I would just write. I would write music, write poems, um, because I was subjected to sexual abuse at a young age. Um, in my household, we were, we had an open home policy. You know, mum had a massive heart, wanted to help everyone, um, not knowing that she was inviting, you know, the uncle bullies into our house. Uncle bullies, auntie bullies. Um, and so, yeah, sexual abuse, um, physical violence, family violence was a normal part of our everyday. And so every time I gave someone power or wanted help from someone, that trust was always violated. And so now as a man, when I met this strong woman to my right, this manawahine, uh, we were friends for four years before I asked her to be my girlfriend. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I created the, the name of this book. I'll get to your question, sorry. No, you're good, bro. Go um, away. But then I also created, so my mum, you know, she, I witnessed my mother be a rehab centre, be rehabilitation for my father, who never chose to do the work or take responsibility. And while he didn't transform all his pain and all his mama, all his trauma, he eventually transmitted that onto us kids and his wife. But then I also credit the book to, my, to this strong woman on my right, a woman who did not put up with my shit. When I asked her to be my girlfriend, she said to me, I love you and I will walk this journey with you, but you need to check your ass into counselling. And I was like, counselling? What the heck? Like, I never had experienced someone have boundaries. So for, for, for those of us who have never experienced boundaries, boundaries feel like a massive middle finger. Um, but she knew who she was. She respected her mana. She respected her, her sovereignty. She was willing to walk with me, um, but she wasn't going to do the work for me. 
And so when I took myself into counselling with my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, I felt sorry for our counsellor because I think he probably needed counselling after counselling. <laughs> um, but that was really the, the beginning of, of my, the inner work. And so I had to revisit and tell myself the boy that was abused, the boy that was you know, taken advantage of, abandoned, rejected, all that stuff, I had to go back and show up for him. So there was no more relying on anyone outside of me to give me power, to heal me. I had to show up for a little Matt. And so... There he is. <laughs> um, I think there's... I want to open the door here for Sarah um, because we hear about Matt Brown a lot and the She Is Not Your Rehab movement. You know, it's gone global. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of the mahi behind the scenes is, is Sarah. You know, how... When I think about you in, in this book, you know, um, and your ability to take his story and pen that into something that I want to say digestible, but for some people it's probably not. You know, it's something that's really um, provocative, evocative. It's, it's strong. It's confronting. As a writer, how do you convey the stories? Well, um, I feel that it naturally just was, or it had to be an invitation for people to be able to uh, look inside themselves in some way and do the work. And so I was always mindful of all of our communication, this topic of domestic violence, of family harm, of intimate partner violence, you know, all of it. It's not popular to talk about. Mm. And it's very difficult to do it in a way that people actually want to engage with it and in a way that really resonates within people's hearts because you're triggering some very deep mummy, some very deep issues, beliefs, all that kind of stuff. And so I do believe that gentleness is really required. Um, and I, I tried to think, Matt and I discussed how he wanted his story told. And he just said, it has to be an extension of the work. It has to be an extension of the real corridor in our barbershop or in our prison program. So, you know, when you read it, you were one of the first people to read it before it went, you know, to mm. print, because he wanted, you know, some people that were close to him to you know, review it, I remember you were like, oh, it's actually like hearing him speak in the shop. Like, and that's what we really, I guess, wanted because there's a gentleness about him which invites people to have the courage to address some really difficult things. And that had to come through this book as well. Like, this had to be, we saw this as being a tonga, a gift to people, mm. um, especially for people who perhaps counselling or therapy or, you know, any sort of help like that probably wasn't that accessible. And so our goal when we wrote the book was actually that it would be available in every single prison here in Aotearoa. That was one of our main goals. We wanted the tools to be accessible and um, digestible for people. So I think the way we tried to communicate was it had to be real, it had to be raw, but it had to be also promising and hopeful and... Um, like, lots of people have traumatic stories. Like, like Matt says, his story is a drop in the bucket, but um, there's not a lot of stories out there that give you the tools of how you go from intergenerational trauma to intergenerational healing, mm. and that's what we wanted to highlight. We wanted to say to people, hey, you know what? What happened to you wasn't your fault, but your healing is your responsibility, and here is how we did it. And we're not saying that this is a cut-and-paste solution for you, 
but this is, this is what worked for us, and this is just a window into another possibility and into another life, and mm. that was kind of the heart of it, really. Yeah, I, m- I remember reading it the first time through and thinking, you know, <laughs> well, some of these things are triggering to me. Why are you, why are you attacking me like this? <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, because a lot of the chapters have those little, those endings that offer... Um, not necessarily solutions. I don't think that you provide solutions to anybody, but steps, mm. right, and, and, and opportunities to actually engage and, and, and seek. So for those who aren't familiar with these guys' work, it's more than a book. Obviously, they're, they're out in the community doing a lot, not just in the barbershop, but the work that you do in the prisons, the work that you do um, delivering your workshops, the work with domestic violence. Um, is there a lot of influence coming from the mahi that you do in the community? Yeah, absolutely, eh? I feel, because I also worked on the domestic violence phone lines for a while as well, and that was really good research, Um, especially into some of the topics like around coercive control, which is in our chapter, she is not yours to control, and just hearing from that, and I know Matt felt the same, eh, with the mahi, interviewing and talking to and spending time with men. Obviously it comes from a real place. Mm -hmm. Like, I've always been uh, of the belief, who am I to do this work with men? who sit in my chair in the prisons if I don't do this work with myself. Mm. And so I think, and the, the thing with me, men can smell bullshit. <laughs> like, you know, like, this guy's fake. I was like, well, yeah. Um, and so I had to always, I've always had to be authentic to who I am and my story. Like, this is, I've been talking about my story of sexual abuse and physical abuse since I was in high school. I remember doing it in my high school speech when I was 15, standing up there crying in front of my peers, mm. talking about my story and I chose to speak up. And so, yeah, it hasn't been popular, but I've been doing this ongoing work, this journey of healing. It doesn't feel like butterflies and rainbows. It's crying and ugly crying to my wife. And, you know, so it's painful. Mm. But I do it because it's very real. The shit is happening right now in our backyard as we're here on stage, as we're sitting here talking. Our children in our neighbourhoods not just in the poor areas, in the white picket fence areas, mm. are, are getting abused. That's right. And I feel like one of our good friends um, tonight, I don't know where he is, Mark, um, from the New Zealand police. I can't see him, but he... Oh, there he is. Hello over there. Um, uh, you know, we do some mahi alongside the um, Integrated Safety Response here in Canterbury. So it's um, an intergener- um, inter-agency response to family harm. And our friends at the police will say, you know, right now family harm incidences are up just in Canterbury. So usually in one 24-hour period, there'll be about 45 cases, and now it's around 60, 65. Like, that's a huge jump, you know, through the COVID period. And so that you've got to think, that's, that's 60, 65 whanau. That's how many children in that house. Like, that's a lot in 24 hours. It's happening everywhere. It is not just a poor brown problem. It's not just a certain neighbourhood or anything. It's across the board. And... That's something that we really have to talk about as a country, as a community. Could you imagine the response that a book like this would have 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Like, I, I've, and when I was 15, all my peers in school who were of Polynesian were like, bro, don't, what are you doing talking about this stuff? Yeah, like, you're it's bringing not shame very manly. to your family. No. Not manly, but then you're also bringing shame, you know, that your parents must be so, like, you know, disappointed, disappointed in you. I'm like, well, come, come live in my household. Even the name <laughs> triggers people. You know, so it wasn't even just the book. She is not your rehab. People wearing our T-shirts all around the world and writing to us about their interactions with people out there. Mm. You know, or someone came up to me and was like, you know, blah, 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 you know, why did you have that on your T-shirt? This, you know, it made them feel a certain kind of way. So I do feel that 20 years ago they weren't ready for that. 
they're still not. They're still not really. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to bring it back to um, Aitofi. I want to bring it back to Mum. Um, and I know that it's a bit of a touchy subject, so, but you know, you talked about you opened with a letter before to a man who was very influential in the mahi you do. The story of your mum is equally so, if not more. <sighs> I lost my mum almost a year ago, mm. in December last year. It's been, it's been a, grief is a bitch. Mm. Um, it's cut open a wound, and underneath that wound is powerlessness. The powerlessness as a child, watching your mum get beaten up. My first experience of domestic violence was watching my mum get beaten up with our Christmas tree around this month mm -hmm. um, and not being able to save her at the hands of my dear father. And then to lose her to cancer and still I couldn't do anything to save her. And, you know, my mum didn't want us to put the story out there. Mm. <laughs> she was like always, oh, son, why are you going to talk about all the sad stuff? I like, talk about the happy stuff. I'm like, I would, mum, if there was happy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what, though, I have to say about Mum, um, you know, we, we told her before she passed that the book would be dedicated to her, and so we did a photo shoot, and you'll see it inside the book, and she was pretty stoked on this picture. <laughs> <laughs> so she was pretty happy with that, and I felt that before she passed, she did give her blessing, which was really big, wasn't it, love? Yeah. And so I think the book, Whakamana's, yeah. my mum's life, like, even though Mum made some silly decisions which harmed us, her children, I, I, I have to believe and assume that she did the best that she knew with what she had. Because yeah. if I choose to believe that opposite, that only leaves me bitter and angry. Mm -hmm. And if I don't heal from... Because I don't want to be bitter and angry, because if I remain bitter and angry, I transmit that to my, my, mm -hmm. my dear children. And so I, I've had to forgive my perpetrators, people who perpetrated violence on me, so I didn't pass that same pain and trauma onto my, my dear children and my beautiful wife. How I live and how I choose to, to, to carry myself and be, not just on social media or in the book or in the barber shop, but behind closed doors with my kids, I believe that's me honouring my mum's life. Beautiful prayer. I don't actually know where to go from there. It's <laughs> kind of getting in my feels a little bit. Um, I know she was proud. You know, and that's one of the things that, um, even back to the TEDx or the TED talk and the beginning of the, the movement, the T-shirts, you know, she was here. She witnessed all of that um, and saying, yeah, I know she's proud, bro. I, I find it really interesting because the book is targeted at men, right? It's, it's for men to read. It's for men to learn. Um, and yet so many women are drawn to it as well, um, but they also, um, it's their story as much as it is the men's story, do you know what mm. I, I mean? Like when, we, when we're talking about your story, it's your mum's story. Mm. And when we talk about other men's, it's their mum's story, it's their wife's story, it's their daughter's story. Yeah. Is there more to the book to come? I think, yeah, there's always more to come because we're all on a journey and for us, we're just so committed to a co-papa of encouraging people to do the work, encouraging people that intergenerational healing is possible for them, for their whanau, for their tamariki. 
And for us, we genuinely see this is just one of the many ways to communicate the message that we're very passionate about. And it leads you back to the community, right? It leads us back to the community. We're grounded in our community. We're grounded in the work. Like, we love spending time with people. This week alone, Matt's spoken at a gym in Nelson, uh, an iwi event in Tokoroa, uh, in Rotorua. Like, we're passionate. We're there. We, we would talk to a crowd of five people. We don't, you know, we would happily do this mahi inside prison, in our barbershop therapy groups. This is what we're passionate about. And I feel like... The book was um, another tool, another opportunity for people to engage with the work that couldn't maybe come to those other ways, you know. And so we used to get a lot of, especially after um, we did our Dear Mr Rock campaign last mm. White Ribbon Day, we got a lot of messages, emails, letters from all around the world. I mean, Matt regularly gets letters from prisons all around the world since the barbershop of how they've watched his TED Talk or whatever. But when we did the Dear Mr Rock campaign, the real thing that we got from it, which was exciting, was so many people from other Indigenous communities around the world saying, hey, yo, to see a brown brother lead something like this, we mm. want this here. Like, we, what's, what's next, you know? So we had people messaging from Hawaii and communities all over, um, you know, Native American communities, um, Aboriginal communities, and we were like, there's a book coming. And the reason why is because we want these tools and this window to intergenerational healing to be possible. So I feel like any way that we could spread that message, get that co-papa out, we'll do it. You know, we're here for it. That's mm. our calling, I guess, for the mm. rest of our days. So can we, can we unpack intergenerational healing? Yeah. You know, and, and what that is and what it means to the co-papa? Yeah, for sure. So intergenerational healing is when someone has the courage in their whanau, um, like Matt has, to say, this shit stops with me. You know, what was perpetrated on me with violence, with abuse, um, with sexual violence and abuse, all of it. Not, no more. It stops with me. This ends in my generation. So when we look at what happened with intergenerational trauma, you know, Matt's dad, who he talks about perpetrating violence onto him, his, you know, mum, his siblings, um, Matt's, you know, had to do, and I'll let him speak to that, had to do the mahi to look at why. Why was dad in so much pain? to then perpetrate violence onto us. And then you look back even further and you look back even further and we can go right back to colonisation, we can go right back to war times of men being, you know, disconnected in that way and coming back to their fa families. Like I've, in, even in the book research, we spoke to 88-year-old 80, 80, um, therapists who were counselling people, you know, a good 50 years ago. And I was like, what was it like counselling men back then? Tell us about that. And he was just like... Well, we're talking about men that were directly affected from fathers that came back from the war. They didn't have access to emotions. This is, you know, this has been the effect. This is what happened to them. This is how they communicated with their sons. So it's, that's what intergenerational trauma is. It just gets, keeps getting passed down. Intergenerational healing, we have access to that too. We can go, no more. This isn't going to be for our whānau anymore. So we make the decision to heal for our whole whānau line. And we do this because our children's children's children, our mokopuna, you know, are gonna, they're going to benefit from it. So we plant the seeds today so they eat the fruit tomorrow. And that's intergenerational healing. So yeah. that's what we believe for. Damn, sexy age. <laughs> <laughs> Just passionate and committed. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, the work is, it's, we, we live and breathe this. Mm. Uh, we do take our tamariki around with us because we want them you know, they're, they're privileged growing up with two parents who love each other, can communicate, 
you know, they're very blessed where some of their peers are not lucky in that arena. Um, but this mahi, I mean, we, start, we, just, we just started with our business as a barber owner. I wanted to have these conversations in my barber chair. And like I said before, who am I to do this work with the men that sit in my chair if I can't do this with myself? And so over the last couple of years, we've um, collaborated with um, the Ministry of Social Development, who's, you know, seen our mahi. Um, and, you know, for me, a, a, a brother who you know, grew up on the east side of Christchurch, um, government knock, knocking on my door, I'm like, hmm, what do you guys want? <laughs> um, but they've seen the mahi, they've seen the, you know, authentic work that we were doing with men, and, and men, you know, there were many success stories. I'll share one incident. These wānanga we, we held around the country were barbers because I feel like, you know, the barber shop is a place where men can just come and, you know, they're coming in for a, to look good, you know, have a good, look good for their date, whatever, for a job interview. But to, it's such a sacred space, you know, for some reason when you sit in your hairdresser or barber's chair, you just start talking to them about your problems. So in, in that way, us barbers are cheap therapists. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to kind of um, get barbers together and talk about these hard conversations, stuff that are happening in our backyard. And again, who are, my, who are we to, as barbers to do this work if we don't do this with ourselves? And so at one of these wānangas, there was 50, 50 men that attended this. We ran this activity called the Circle of Courage. And, you know, I start by asking a question, you know, step into the circle if you have ever, um, if you've ever felt misunderstood. 50 men stood in that circle. Okay, stay in the circle if you've ever felt heartbroken, if your heart's ever been broken. Half of the men step out. Half of them stay in the circle. I keep asking these questions. One of the last questions I always ask is around suicide or sexual abuse. This one warning I asked, step into the circle if you've ever been sexually abused. 47 out of 50 men stood in that circle. And when each of these tane, each of these gentlemen looked up and seen each other, they just started crying. And these are all men from different backgrounds. They weren't just brown and poor. These are all different kinds of men. And so my question is, how many of our men suffer in silence? Mm. How has culture encouraged men to, you know, harden up, don't talk about your emotions, don't feel like... That hasn't worked for us. It's mm. destroying. It's destroying us. And so when I look at my son, I think of my son and, and trying to teach him how to regulate his emotions when he gets upset... A lot of our men don't know how to regulate emotions. And so anger and rage seems that is the only outlet that most of us choose because we feel powerful. But well, most I, of us... I, I don't even believe that in, we would have the number of men incarcerated in this country because 51% of men incarcerated in this country are Māori. I do not believe we would have the number we have if men actually knew how to regulate and were taught to regulate their emotions as a young child if they understood how to have access to emotions other than anger. Because when I see my son get frustrated, as he sometimes does, and he'll you know, want to lash out and he'll be quite physical about that, I just sit down and we just calmly talk to him. You know, tell, tell me how you're feeling at the moment. And he'll you know, say, I'm feeling upset because, or I'm feeling disappointed because. And if only people had language for their emotions, I don't believe we would have the problem we have. Mm. And so for us, it's... We do work with grown-up men. We would like to see this work done with younger children so that they don't have to get to this place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but the changing face of masculinity, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that's 
important to me. It's something that I, I do research in. But more importantly, it's something that we're seeing shift, right? Mm. Particularly within our Māori and Pacifica men. Um, but again, it comes back to that idea before, like 10 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about a book like this. Mm. It just wouldn't be something that anybody would want mm. to be confronted with. Mm. As society changes and our views of, of what makes a man changes, what are the other tools, what are the other things that we can bring into our, our, our young men in particular mm. um, to avoid these, these pitfalls? Because they, as you mentioned, a lot of them end up in the wrong places. Mm. They, they get angry, they don't have a way to channel that anger or emotion and they end up doing silly things. Mm. We know a lot of people who get in trouble not because they're bad, mm. but because they do something dumb. Mm. Yeah. You know, because they haven't got the ability to think through the consequences of said action or the emotion or what they're truly feeling. You know, you, um, you talked before about um, being, the anger makes you feel powerful. Mm. But when in reality, you're powerless, mm. right? You're powerless to that emotion and to that anger. What, you're a what slave else? to it. You're a slave to it, mm -hmm. right? So what, what else can we be giving these young men? Access and understanding of real connection, real intimacy. Um, we live in the most disconnected time, I believe. I think people think, you know, connection is about a Wi-Fi speed, to be honest. That's, that's this world, right? And so when I look at how disconnected some of our kids are, they don't even have, I wonder how many children go home at night to some genuine quarter or genuine conversation, genuine um, access to just insightful, emotional, intelligent mm. conversation. Because our children get that, but when I sometimes speak to like my children's friends, you know, I've got a you know 18 year old and her friends come home and with her and you know, some of them will say that they never ever talk to their parents. They don't have dinner with them. It's just it, you're just so shut off, and so they spend all their time on their phone. I believe this generation really do want genuine connection, and they can't access it, so they look for it in other ways. And when you can't get genuine human interaction, kanohi ki te kanohi, like, I, I believe that that's only going to affect us negatively. So we have to really prioritise that and educate people around that because I just dread to think about the next generation not having that. In a time where we're so time poor, and I, and I almost laugh when I say that to mm. you guys because I know you guys are so time poor with all your different commitments, how do we make connection sexy? You know, how do we make it sexy to talk to each other? And, you know, when I say sexy, I don't mean in that sense, although you can talk to each other in that way if you want to <laughs> after, after, not now. Um, but, you know, how do we make that something that people want to do and, and, and prioritise and make time for? Because it, it seems so important. It's so important. I'm my, when I encourage people that I talk to, because you're right, people are very time poor and busyness and all of that, I think if you can just prioritise one genuine interaction with your children and your partner every single day, I believe that that is a really, really good place to start. So what I mean by that is not when you're busy on your phone or doing a million things or whatever, actually face-to-face -face communication, even if it's five minutes, we try to do it around story time. We have story time. We do our affirmations, karakia. We talk, how was your day? Tell us about what happened. And, oh, how did that make you feel? Like, just genuine things. And it literally takes, like, 10, 15 minutes. Um, if you can just prioritise one thing, that's what your kids will remember. And so mm. I don't want to overwhelm people with, oh, you know, you should be present 24-7 and involved in everything. Like, that's not possible for a lot of whanau. And I'm, 
appreciative of that because we live in a time where it's really expensive to live. Mm. Both parents have to do the mahi, like all of that. But if we can just prioritise 15 minutes a day with our children to have a genuine interaction, no devices, no screens, I believe that's where we can start. That's just my little tip of what I try to do myself. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. Or, or eye-gazing. One, one activity that we often do, which me and my wife do on date nights, we, um, <laughs> we'll go out and sit in a restaurant, and we like, obviously have like, you know, three to five questions that we prep for each other. We know it's date night, date nights, Wednesday nights. Um, and we sit in these restaurants, and we have a meal, and we just sit there staring at each other, but we have to ask these hard questions. And I feel for the waitresses, they're like, what do we do here? <laughs> Sometimes we're just sitting there crying, but it's crazy. Like, when we do these eye-gazing activities with our barbers, these wānangas, a lot of these men are, sitting there, are standing there staring at another guy's eyes for a minute, and they just end up crying because we've been so disconnected from each other, but yet the eyes are the gateway to our souls and our heart. And so, and these men are often like, I've been married to my wife for 10, 20 years, and I've never looked, looked at her eyes longer than a minute. It's just crazy because we're so used to, you know, quick fixes, instant so gratification. There's one minute, right, that can just create connection. Yeah, I believe so. And just being really interested in each other, even when you get busy, there's always, um, you know, opportunity to just check in. And even just like little things during the day, like texting your children or your partner, hey, I'm just thinking of you, I love you. And like, we're busy, we're not with each other all the time, but we often will text each other little, just little like, hey, I'm, and just to know that someone's thought of you, you know, I think that that's meaningful. We have to just prioritise small, genuinely meaningful interactions. Yeah, cool. Um, one of the reasons I ask these questions of Sarah is, a lot of people don't know this, but she used to be a, a writer of love. Um, you know, she used to have, I know, I, I like to bring this up. People can go digging if you want to get your online sleuth on. But, you know, because I, I see such a, um, a shift, right, from writing about, blog about love into a book. Are you saying book. you were one of the many, the few readers? Oh, <laughs> look for tips at times. Um, but the thing is, we go into a book like this and, and it's, it's just as much love. This book is love. You know, it's, it's love for self, it's love for the, the young boy, it's love for the community of men that you're working with. You know, I don't think it's too far a, a step, although it seems so different. You know, but there's so much love in there and there's so much um, compassion and, and, and genuine intent behind the mahi that you guys do. We need to normalise these conversations. Ignoring it does nothing because mm -hmm. it's happening in our backyard. You know someone that's going through family violence mm -hmm. or suffering from trauma. Like all of us know it. And so to ignore it and not have this conversation amongst your group of friends, my challenge is what kind of friendships do you have, you know? I think we just have to remember that we're all human beings and we're all susceptible to all these emotions. Like, for instance, we had a conversation recently with an older Pākehā lady who, it was completely nothing about our work, it was not anything to do with that, mm. but we ended up interacting with her um, and she was, you know, talking about doing her job and la, la, la. And then she sort of brought into the conversation that she had lost her husband um, of many years um, in quite a tragic way. And we were like, we just stopped. It was, oh. And you could just tell it. Well, there was a lot of mama there. You could just tell. And so you could just skim over that and be like, oh, okay. Like, change the subject Sorry, awkwardly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, but we were like, oh, no, like, let's talk about that. Like, how are you? How are you? You know, like, I'm genuinely interested. 
And she just burst into tears. And we had this really deep court at all. She said, no one's asked me in years how I am. Yeah, and genuinely wanted to know. And she said, this is the most meaningful conversation I've had this year. And I thought, we're only like a few months off the end of the year. That's really sad. You know, but in all of her world and all of her interactions, no one had bothered to check in. No one had asked her any meaningful type questions and let her talk about her sadness, her grief, her loneliness, mm. um, her disappointment, all of that stuff, which is just human feelings, right? People just get awkward because they're like, oh, if they're going to talk about feelings, what are we going to do with that? I'm like, you don't have to do anything with it. Just sit with it. Just be with that person. We didn't offer any great insight. We weren't there to give her any answers. All we did was we're simply interested and we just let her have that space to talk. And by the time we gave her a hug and left, I mean, she was like, I really just needed that today. Like, I didn't know how much I needed it. So I just think we need to prioritise genuine connection. And one of the biggest tools, I, th I believe, for myself and why it's worked as a barber is I don't believe I'm, you know, I'm the smartest man or has have the best answers or even an academic, like, this guy. Like this clever guy this over here, who's very man. humble, by the way, but his PhD. <laughs> about to come out, so he will be Dr. Phil soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, you threw me in there, bro. It's yeah, going no, back at you. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but my thing is always just, I think just accompanying people, walking alongside them, is a massive, massive, massive help tool to help people to open up and hold their space for them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the guys that sit in my chair, they may not look like me, they may wear uniforms, suits gang pitches, like, I don't have the answers, but the space is yours to talk. And that's something you guys talk about a lot, eh, is, is holding space. Mm -hmm. What does Good it mean question. to hold space? It literally means to just make the space available for the person to be and share what they need to. Mm. Um, and so I believe it's just learning how to really be with people, with whatever they choose to bring and share, and knowing that you don't have to have any special magic answers. Like, it's really not up to us to give special magic answers. I think we just have to learn how to be with other people in whatever emotional state they're in. When I think about it, and when I think back to when I first met, met Matt 10 years ago, and first sat in the, the shed, the little tin shed, if you've read the book, it's right at the start. Um, and as soon as somebody, you let them into that space to touch you, you know, it's when, um, I don't know how many people have got tattoos in the room, but if someone's tattooing you, you talk to them. Because mm. generally speaking, you're, you're with them for hours and it would be rude not to. But, you know, there's this, there's this concept of touch, right? And I think this, we have the same thing with our barbers, um, with our hairdressers. You know, we tend to open up in a, in a way that's different because we've allowed them to touch us. Mm -hmm. And so I can see how you transition from being a barber into someone in the mahi that you're doing. However, I must say that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have seen it coming. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, I just think it's, a, it's, it's an amazing transition. You, you, you've got to a point now where you talked earlier about trying to get the book into prisons. Mm -hmm. You guys have been pretty successful with that, right? Yeah, yeah it's on its way. It's, um, in, it's in COVID shipping time, so <laughs> mm -hmm. that means it's on its way. But we um, fundraised $100,000, um, enough to buy over 9,300 copies, so every person incarcerated could have one. And um, that was something we were really excited about. And just something that we felt, yeah, that was really meaningful to us because um, I remember the first day we actually ran our first prison program at Christchurch Men's. 
I took a photo outside the front of the prison with Matt holding his clear barber bag filled with all the tools that had to be approved to get in, including some cutthroat blades. I was like, are you sure you want to take that in? Um, <laughs> but anyway, he took it in, and I remember saying to him, how do you feel? And, he, and I remember you saying, oh, I just feel like this is a full circle because I used to come here as a five-year-old boy visiting my dad. And so to come back in here and invest into the lives of men who will one day leave prison, I hope that I give them something that they can be better for their tamariki. And so that's our desire with the book. Obviously, we can't go around and go to every prison all the time, um, but we hope that it's something that just gives them a little bit of hope, a seed um, that, you know, nourishes inside of them so that they're able to offer something better for their tamariki when they come out. And that's always been our desire and our hope, really. Because the truth is, people, majority of people who have perpetrated violence or hurt someone or committed crime, were once upon a time, once upon a time victims themselves. Mm. And I know that because on my healing journey, coming back to your first question of my dad, I had to ask those questions: mm. not why the addiction to alcohol or the abuse, but why the pain. Mm. And so when I started answering, finding the answers to why the pain. You know, my father lost his parents at the age of 12, and he was the bread earner for his whanau. Out of nine siblings, he was the only boy in Samoa, and then being shipped to New Zealand um, up in Tamaki Makaurau, and he lived through, you know, the dawn raids and was abused, um, has his own story. And so for a man who couldn't really, didn't know how to regulate his emotions, couldn't speak, you know, this foreign language, he must have been in so much pain and, and fear himself. And so, unfortunately for him, he turned to substances to numb that pain. And um, we were on the receiving end of that. And so, again, if I chose to, to be victim to my childhood of the abuse, which we never condone. I don't condone um, violence on anyone. Um, but it needs to heal so it's not carried on the cycle. The cycle breaks. Yeah. So I think um, we are coming pretty close to time, and I know we need to... Uh, free up some time for, for questions and answers. So Matt just wants to um, close this um, section with, with a reading, um, and then I guess we'll open the floor. <clears throat> Kia ora. Well, we are more alike than we are different, and while I am no expert in anything beyond giving the dopest fade, I know from deep in my soul that the journey of healing is as unique as we are. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. There are no magical bullet point lists, nor is this book my invitation for you to cut and paste my story onto your own. I speak only from my own lived experience with hope that it provides a window to another possibility of life. And I invite you too to own your story also, because in owning it, there lies our power to transform our suffering, to redeem our pain, and to eradicate the great master of shame that I know once controlled every element of my life. The invitation I share is available to my usos, my brothers, who are incarcerated in institutions that do not prioritize genuine rehabilitation. The usos who come from the hoods like mine, with everything stacked up against them, and even those usos who live in material privilege with access to everything, so much so that they can cover up their pain professionally. The invitation of acknowledging the pain inside of you is for all. And the invitation of accepting responsibility for your healing is for all too. She is not your rehab, 
because our rehab is actually the space we create and gift ourselves with our willingness to own our story, heal our trauma, and create a completely different way of living. I wrote this book for every kid living or having lived in a home of violence and abuse. I wrote it for the kids who have had all of their dreams kicked out of them. I wrote our story to remind myself of what's possible, lest I ever forget, and to encourage each of you to believe that it's possible to rewrite the narrative. It's possible to eventually be everything we never got. I'm living proof that a suicidal kid raised in a state house by immigrant parents who lived in violence and abuse for the first 15 years of my life can dream of being something else and then actually be something else. We can break cycles, we can heal, and so we will, and so we are. Mori ora whanau, lava. Dear Mama, may your memory inspire a revolution. So I got the sneaky uh, hand signal from over there that we've got a couple of minutes left. So if there are any pressing questions. Kia ora. Thank you to the three of you. It's been very moving. Um, I just was quite curious, the work that you've done in the prisons, do you feel that there is um, an openness or if it's safe for people to have those genuine connections, like those things that that they need, is it? Good question. Um, so I work in the prisons. Uh, firstly, we often try to do it within the therapeutic unit. So within the therapeutic unit, it's a bit different from mainstream prison. So they have um, support of like psychologists and people that are in that space to support their healing. So when you get moved into a unit like that, and there are a few around the country, they um, therapy is very much prioritised, and so it's a little bit different from just a mainstream environment. So they're the units that we mostly do um, the work in. Um, and then, yeah, we are mindful. We are mindful that they um, that they have conversations with us, and everything we do is actually um, is not mandated, so they don't have to in any way engage with us, and they can choose not to come, but all of them come. And all the work that we do, we're very mindful that when they leave the space with us, some of them are going back to volatile situations. So we try to be mindful of that. Um, but to be honest, we let them lead it. We don't ever really go into, if we're running like a relationship therapy group, I'm just thinking back to one, like we don't really go on with an agenda. We actually let them lead the conversation in the court at all. We just have a rule of no question being off limits. So what they want to ask us, we're willing to talk about. And um, they want to have deep court at all. They want to have deep connection. And so we've had some of the most beautiful, raw, real conversations inside prison. In fact, Matt prefers going into prison and doing the work there than probably any other space because it's just, you strip back all the bullshit and, and they're willing to go there. So, yeah, that's how we've experienced it. I just want to thank Matt and Sarah once more. Um, we, we can see the connection that they have, but it's not just the connection between themselves with their family, but to the mahi, um, to the stories. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for letting me share the stage with you tonight. <laughs> it almost didn't happen due to lockdown and then now it's here so you're here and that's great. So from all of us we say 
Thank you very much for coming.